Good afternoon, everyone. At this time, we'll have an open question and answer session. So all the questions you've been writing on your nice paper, you can bring them up. First question. First, thank you so much. This has been a blessing. Um, and this question was one that we were discussing at our table for a while. Um, in showing a lot of non-judgmental love to others, I feel like, especially in our culture, showing love to others very much no, means... This is great. Sorry, uh, go ahead. No, it's okay. I feel like in our culture now, showing love to others means condoning completely their actions. And that if you disagree with someone or you don't think that what they're doing is right, that you're not showing love. And um, knowing how to be able to tell someone, I don't agree with what you're doing, but still love them, yeah. is extremely difficult. And how do you show that there is a love there, even if you can't? agree with them and you know what steps can you take to do that that's such a difficult thing um because they weirdly they are already judging you even before you say anything if they know you're a christian they've already convinced themselves that you believe terrible things about them and um i think it's psychologically so complicated that uh what's going on is a, a sense of meaninglessness in life um, that, that it seems like my life isn't making any difference, I'm just spinning my wheels. I think because we have such a, so much more emphasis in our culture on being a consumer, buying things, the advertising's always trying to push us toward making impulse purchases by saying that we're original, we think outside the box, we march to a different drummer. All of that exacerbates both loneliness and a kind of soul sickness because of just consuming too much. I think this crisis of meaninglessness is what drives people to think of themselves as either victims or heroes that are going to stand against the bad guys, and they have to find a bad guy. If there isn't a bad guy, they have to in invent one. Um, so I think basically there's, there's not any way to get through it, that they are so determined that you are the bad guy that if you don't believe the things that they want you to believe in the little script in their head, they'll just ignore it. They'll just attribute it to you anyway. Or they'll say, well, this other person believes that, and he's just like you. And you don't get a chance to even talk about it. I, we have this illusion that they're like two equal and opposite sides, and each person has a right to their own opinion, and that's just not what reality is. You know, the reality is, is that the entire elite and power and the wealthiest people and all of that, they're just totally lined up against us and we're going to be more and more despised and excluded. Um, a way I ran into this when I was doing the Feminists for Life, the pro-life feminism, I was on a radio, a TV show once and when we went off the air, the TV host, who I could see during the conversation, he just had contempt for me. When it was over, he kind of just spat out at me. He said, most anti-choicers, at least they're honest, and they, they admit that they only care about fetuses. But you are worse than they are because you're a liar, and you pretend that you care about women. So it's like there was, there's no way through that, you know? 
And it's going to be the same way with us, you know, if you're saying, I'm not like Westboro Baptist Church. I don't believe that. What I believe is this. They'll say, well, you're lying. Because their psychological need is to find a bad guy. So their life has some meaning. It's a, um, it's a terrible and, I think, intractable situation. And, um, boy, I, we just have to live through it, you know? I, I think there are ways you can think through to um, you know, explain what you're saying a little more clearly, a way to make distinctions. And um, something we used when I was helping to manage pro-life, pro-choice dialogue groups is that we would have four people, two you know, from each side, sit together and just talk. And the goal would be to have your opponent be able to tell you what you believed accurately, politely, and respectfully in terms that you could affirm. So when you run into somebody who's attributing things to you that you don't believe, in theory, you could say, wait, I think you don't understand me. Tell me what you think I believe. And then you can start saying, no, no, that's not the right word for it. It's more like this. You can try to correct what they believe. It's not going to work, though, <laughs> because they need to hate you. They need somebody to hate. Um, so I think I do recommend that as a good kind of exercise to go through. Tell me what you think I believe, because I don't think that's what I do believe. And probably we agree more than, than you expect. It's, it's a very good way to get a hearing for yourself and to fine-tune and try to make more accurate what your beliefs are. However, I think we're up almost against a tidal wave of the sense of life is now meaningless. I'm just a consumer. All I do is eat and, and watch TV and you know, check my phone. And the sickness inside, you, know, you feel like, well, I want to be a hero. I want to be like the Hulk. You know? So I've got to find bad guys to smash. And we've been nominated to be the bad guys. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's something you can do, but I think ultimately it's, it's not going to work. There are times I say, I'm glad I'm old. <laughs> I'm glad I'm old. I'm not going to have to go through the worst of this. Or is it the best of this? You know, I've, I've, I've often used the analogy of like a round clock, like a clock face. And um, if you could say that, like, what's the best time in human history for Christians? Like 12 o'clock would be when most of the culture is Christian and it's not just superficial, they really mean it. And, you know, there's a vigorous kind of thing. The church is growing and, you know, Christianity is really at a high. And then at 6 o'clock would be the opposite, when everything's going wrong and Christians are despised and they're being martyred like, like the early church. So which is the better time to live? You know, where do, where do we live? Maybe we're like around nine o'clock where it's slowly getting worse. Um, is it better to live in that contented Christian community or better to live in a time of persecution? And the drawback to living at 12 o'clock is that there's something draining about being surrounded by other people who call themselves Christians but who take it very superficially. I don't know why that is. I don't know what's the psychological formula that causes it, but if you're going to a church where there's a little handful of very committed people, and then there are 80 or 90 people that just kind of check in, check out, and it doesn't impact their lives. For those of you who really love the Lord, there's something draining about that. It has an exhausting quality, and I haven't figured out why that is. So, you know, maybe you think, I want to live at the 12 o'clock, but it has its own drawbacks. And, 
if you're living at the six o'clock, you see so much heroism and you see so many miracles. And for the very fact that things are so tense and dramatic and everything is at stake, the problem of meaninglessness is nowhere to be found. You are seeing people exercise such heroic meaning in their lives that there's something very vibrant and invigorating about that. So, yeah, which one's the best time to live? That's why I always say my thing about the um, public arena, the only thing those early Christians could do was die. It was the only thing they could do in the public arena. But they died with so much grace that they ended up bringing the whole world to Jesus Christ. So I think God puts us down in the time that he thinks we're able to handle. You know, maybe he thinks we're not really brave enough to go through the pure, intense, um, crucifying persecution that the first generation did. We're where he thinks we can handle it. We just need to meet this challenge as bravely as we can, and execute our lives as well as we can. Other questions? Yeah? Hello, Matushka. Oh. Hi. So um, I became a Christian, Orthodox Christian, about seven, eight years now. And I noted as I began my spiritual journey, I started seeing, you know, the sins of my past that I had never known that I had been a part of you know, sins against people, in particular loved ones and friends. And I guess my question is, you know, I ask forgiveness in, in uh, confession, but, you know, is that, is that something we should do, go to people and ask forgiveness for those sins or, or bringing it up, or would bringing it up cause more pain? And should I leave it with God, you know, about those things? those things in the past. Yes, so if you've, um, as you become aware of sins you've committed against others in your past, should you, should you go to them just face to face and ask forgiveness? Or is that, is it better to leave, let sleeping dogs lie, you know, like they say, and uh, not, not bring it up all over again? I think that's such a case by case question. Um, situation by situation. There are some people that don't want to ever think about it again. Or maybe they've even forgotten it. I've sometimes had people, you know, apologize for me for things I never noticed, um, that I, I hadn't even registered, that they'd done something they were afraid might have offended me. And uh, I've, I've had the same thing. I apologized to somebody, and um, he didn't even notice that I'd said that. If it's something that might really upset them, if it was something that was such a painful memory that it would be embarrassing to bring it up again, then it's probably better not to. Um, but other than that, I think with the guidance of your priest and in prayer, you can determine um, whether to do it or not. It's probably always safe not to, but there may be many cases where being able to apologize would bring the person a lot of healing. Maybe even you know, bring them to the Lord or bring them to orthodoxy. Yes. So you mentioned yesterday the the idea that some of our thoughts that blitz through are not coming from us, they're mm. coming from the evil one. But conversely, could sometimes God be putting thoughts in our minds? And if so, how do we evaluate what 
mm. what the mm -hmm. source of those thoughts are. Right, right. Yes, I, I do think that God can send us thoughts. Um, I think we've all experienced that. Like how many times you suddenly find you're thinking about somebody and you pray for them, and then you find out that they needed prayer right then. You know, obviously that's your guardian angel, you know, or some good, good force directing you that way. We're all so connected with each other in ways we don't know. So definitely sometimes the thoughts are coming from a good source. Um, in, order to, in order to determine what the origin of it is, um, ask your priest, <laughs> bring it to your, your priest or your spiritual father or spiritual mother and pray about it. Um, we sometimes we get deluded, we think that something is from God when really it's our pride or that we want to be able to tell somebody, you know, God spoke to me. So it does take a lot of discernment. Long ago somebody said to me, if it makes you feel excited, it's not the Lord. If you start feeling excited about it, then probably there's some ego wrapped up in it. So that's just like a little rule of thumb. Um, it takes a lot of discernment. And I know um, sometimes things have mixed motives, you know? It's like this, this looks like it would be the right thing to do. Perhaps it is the right thing to do, but I'm also feeling proud of wanting to do this. But the thing I want to do is good enough that I should make a sacrifice of allowing my foolish pride to be evident to me, that I will see my own pride as I do this. And I can laugh at myself at seeing this pride spring up, because nevertheless, it still is important to do it. It can be very complicated. I think it gets easier with time that you begin to have a... Um, you can kind of sense the flavor of it if it's coming from a good place or a bad place. And uh, definitely we can have our guardian angels right beside us all the time, you know, leading us and directing us and making suggestions. It's wonderful to cultivate that. So I always encourage people to, to hope that you will get that sense of the presence of your angel there directing and guiding you. Yes. Poor father, he's having to run back and forth. <laughs> yeah. So in that same breath, um, it, for me, having been raised Catholic and then became a Protestant, I am not very aware of my guardian angel. I naturally assume it's the Holy Spirit. How do you discern the difference between the two? Yeah, yeah, I know just what you mean. Uh, as a Protestant, I was always saying, I felt the Lord leading me to do this, or I felt the Lord bringing this to mind. And um, when I was seeing Father George Kelchu as my spiritual father, he said, oh, that's your guardian angel. Um, so I don't know, or is it the Holy Spirit? I, I don't know for sure. I think it's all kind of all the same source, that my guardian angel is representing the will of God to me. Um, so it's an opportunity to recognize that we're foolish and we don't know what we're talking about, but that we can say, I, I feel that it's, it's coming from the good place. I feel that this is the direction the Lord wants me to have, whether the immediate messenger is my guardian angel or just something directly from the Holy Spirit. Just the I'd discernment just a, a to tell the difference. brief word on that, that uh, angel means, angelos means messenger. So if we thought my guardian messenger it might be more clear that it all comes from one source. And Father, did you want to say any more about these questions no, about fine. discernment or 
Yeah, you're the guy, you know, I keep saying, ask him, go to this guy. <laughs> so I had a question about tithing. Um, when you found the $100 bill and the $50 bill, do you also give 10% of that? Like just other ways that you get money other than like your job or whatever? Uh, and I think I missed a, a word or a phrase a little earlier. Um, what was the first part of what you um, said? When you found the money. Oh, um, yeah. Do, do, so when you get, got the $50 and the $100, did you give like $5 and $10 to the church? Or, you know, like money that you get that's outside yeah. of your income. Yeah. You know, I don't remember if I did. I might not have thought of it. It might have just been so odd to me. When I figure my tithe, I look in Quicken, and I look at all the income that's come in, and I think something that came in just like that is cash. I probably didn't even think of it. I mean, how should we think of it? Not like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. What kind of guidelines? I mean, do we do? Is is the the ten percent the, the word tithe? You know, is that including all sources of income, mm -hmm. or is it something that we should just look at as pre-tax yeah. of our jobs? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. I I always. I always thought of it, but ask your priest. I always, always thought of it as earned income. So um, I, I think about the, the pattern that they had at the time of Jesus, that it was, you know, if in your garden you had tomatoes, you would bring 10% of your tomatoes. It was whatever you had worked on, whatever your own labor had brought about. So I usually tithed on that. I, I usually didn't tithe on gifts. Um, if my husband went to somebody's house for house blessing and they you know, gave him $20 cash. I didn't, I didn't tithe on it. If they gave him $200 in a check, I would tithe on it. Um, it. Basically, it came down to what was showing up in my Quicken, you know, once a month when I figured out what it was. So I, I let the edges of it be a little bit raggedy. I, I didn't try to be, you know, try to keep track of every single dollar that came in. Um, let myself have a little flexibility there just for the purpose of keeping um, record keeping, bookkeeping a little bit smoother and easier. Um, in the vein of loving your enemies, I appreciated that you mentioned the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation. Mm -hmm. um, but also, like, so, can you talk more about practically, like, loving your enemies? Is that just kind of a prayer thing? Is that just praying for them at that point, or, or what else? Mm -hmm. well, or, are there any enemies. resources, like, that we could read more about it, too, would you recommend, also? Mm -hmm. um, how do you love your enemies if the, the enemy is a, still an enemy and still a danger to you? I, I think that self-protection is a valid first concern. And if you're unable to f feel trust or to feel safe in the presence of someone, that you are not compelled to resume, um, to resume trust or to be reconciled with them. It's all right just to say the past is the past. I'm closing that door. I'm not going to think about it anymore. You are forgiven. You're off the hook for what you did. You can think about that, but you don't have to start interacting with them again if it's if you feel like they would be able to go on hurting you, if they might try to hurt you again, or if just being around them is so unbearable and destructive and terrifying to you, you shouldn't be required to be with them again. There's 
there's probably a sliding scale of healing that um, you may get to the point where you don't feel that upset anymore, you know, and where you, even though they haven't changed at all, you might change as you're being healed. And you might feel like, well, now I do feel like I'm able to spend time with them without getting that upset. Hopefully, you know, as Christ is healing you, that will become more possible. But uh, we, ha we definitely have the right to protect ourselves. So I have another question. <laughs> um, it's also in the vein of tithing. Um, so when we're teaching our children about how to tithe, um, I, I'm very torn on this being something where I want them to generously and willingly be giving a portion of their money to tithe, but I also don't want them to feel like this is something that's just this really loose optional, <laughs> like, oh yeah, if I, if I really want to tithe, I'll tithe. If I don't, whatever. Like, but I also don't want them to feel forced as if this is like, uh, you know, something they're going to end up rejecting because they feel like we've put this upon them. So like, where, where do you fall on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, by so much, it depends upon the child and how mature the child is and um, their personality too. Just how, are they, how do they relate to the church? How do they relate to money? You know, are they kind of fearfully clutchy about it or are they naturally generous about it? And I, I think what I would do would be to say, this is what it says in the Bible and this is what Daddy and I like to do. But it's voluntary. Um, St. Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. So if you're able to give cheerfully and with a happy heart, that's a beautiful thing. And if you feel like you can't really do that in a cheerful way, you shouldn't feel compelled to. But you could just kind of lay it out ahead of them and say like, this is the landscape. And this is what Daddy and I do. This was the decision we made. So here's an opportunity. If I give you $10, you could give one back and put it in the plate on Sunday. Usually, children really like putting the money in the plate. They like that feeling. So if you convert their, yeah, convert their allowance into a form where they could take out 10% or less or more, whatever they wanted, um, yeah, leave it up to them as much as you can. I think that if you make it a rule that they have to do it, it, it seems so likely that there would be resentment about it and then they would resist it later on in life. So hopefully it'll be an, an invitation to do something that big people do, like mommy and daddy. This is what big people do. You're still little, but you can do this big people thing if you want to. I think that's how I would put it to them. I'll ask a question. Uh -huh. um, my question, I, is if you could elaborate some more on the um, culture of vengeance that you mentioned, because it was a, definitely something worth pondering. And, and perhaps I might ask a little step further of how um, realms of our own Christian culture can encourage a culture of vengeance, um, yes. but also how that is outside of the Christian culture as well within yeah. our society. Yeah, that our Christian culture can also encourage uh, uh, an atmosphere of vengeance, of fostering vengeance. And the, um, I think the first time I really thought about this and noticed it was Mel Gibson's movie Braveheart, um, which is about the, the Scots being oppressed by the English, and it shows 
a lot of scenes that are designed to make you really upset and really you know, hate the English rulers for trying to oppress the Scots and, and just crank you up until you want to see bloodshed and you want to see people destroyed as a result. And evangelical Christians were really praising that movie a lot because of the bravery aspect. They felt like um, you know he was so strong, he was so brave, and he stood up for what he believed in and all that. And nevertheless, they sacrificed him. I, I felt when I saw that movie like I'm just being manipulated here. That the movie director is in charge of everything. These aren't really bad guys. These are actors <laughs> that he is telling them how to behave in a way to provoke the audience to hate that character. Um, it's all this this canned experience that is. Um, been put together specifically to get us agitated and to get us hating someone. It's designed to feed hate and a desire to get even. Um, that movie was the first time I think it really crystallized for me that this is a problem even in entertainment that Christians approve of, that Christians think well of. And they call it, they call it courage or being noble. And it's a funny thing, because those, of course, those are courage and nobility are wonderful things, but the bottom line seemed to be rousing anger, creating anger, even if, if you weren't angry when you walked in, you would get angry sitting there, and then you'd really want to get even. Um, but anyway, that's the strongest example I can think of, and of course, there's been other forms of entertainment since then that do much the same. And I don't know very much about video games, but that's my impression, that often, you know, you're the first-person shooter, and it's just one bad guy after another that you, you just hate with all your heart and want to destroy them. This just obviously isn't good. I, um, I was listening to a book on tape, Rudyard Kipling's Kidnapped, um, which would be maybe 130, 140 years old now, and it's a story where a young man is very badly wronged. His uncle steals his inheritance and then arranges for him to be kidnapped and taken away on a ship that's going to America where he would be basically enslaved and, formed to work and forced to work on a tobacco plantation. But the story is about how he escapes and comes back. And um, as, as he gets closer to the, to the denouement, various people who take part in this life or intersect with him, stress to him very strongly, don't take vengeance, don't hate your uncle, don't foster hatred in your heart. It just was touching to me because you wouldn't hear that today. But in that Scots um, Christian context of 130 years ago, this was something people would automatically think. You have to be careful about the desire for vengeance. And his cause was so right that people he was running into kept telling him and warning him, be careful, don't try to get even, don't have that anger in your heart, don't hate him. Um, boy, that's the way that, that Christian fiction and Christian movie making ought to be, but uh, we don't see a lot of that. It's all a lot simpler and uh, just, you know, bad guy, good guy than, than it used to be. Even movies used to be more subtle than they are now. There's one. Sure. Hi. So I have uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, and her husband um, don't live anywhere near here, but they are proponents of Planned Parenthood, oh. and they donate money. And I have not even known that. I thought I actually had 
raised all my children because from a very, very early age, I remember Roe versus Wade, I was about 12, and I was thinking, even back then, it was one of the first thoughts that, that I can remember that I thought that was terrible, it was awful that, you know, life began at, at, in, at conception. And uh, I just don't know what to say to them. They, the biggest thing on their part that they told me was that you know, it's not fair for poor people or people who aren't willing to have children to have those children because that child will have a horrible life. I, my retort was, what, are you clairvoyant? Or you know the future? You yeah. know, just because they're poor doesn't mean they're going to have a horrible life. Or it, just because that child is unwanted doesn't mean another person wouldn't want it. But I have, mm. don't know the argument or you know, a good debate with them to, to bring forth that, you know, this is a, a life. Right, right. Do you have a comment on that? That was a, um, you know, that was a good response to say, what are you, clairvoyant? How do you know this child is not going to have a good life? And why is that the way you solve problems is by killing the victim, you know? Um, a child who is abused nevertheless wants to go on living, it doesn't want, you know, here comes a guy who's going to chop your head off. Oh, this will solve all my problems. You know, the child is not looking for a way to die. It's looking for a way to a better life. And how many children have bad childhoods, and then they grow up and they accomplish great things. And they have more compassion, and they spend their lives helping people who are struggling. It's how, how dare we think that we're going to choose for them that they would be better off dead. The whole thing, it's just so weird in our culture that we're supposed to have all this compassion, but one of the first things that compassion does is it wants to kill people off whom we think are not having optimal lives, whether it's children or it's old people or, or disabled people or whatever. It's like, kill them off. That's the quickest way to solve the problem. Um, so, yeah, those are things you can say, and also that there is um, children being placed for adoption. Children who are older, especially by the time they get to be eight or nine, they can wait a long time. They're not easily adopted. But newborns, there's far more demand than there is, you know, a supply here. That parents, adoptive parents who want to adopt a child, there's really not a lot of chance that they ever will because it is so rare for children to become available. And there are waiting lists for children with Down syndrome or waiting lists for children who are born with AIDS or children who are born dying, children with spina bifida. There are waiting lists for parents who would love to raise that child. So um, it, it's not that the child is unwanted. A newborn is never unwanted. You know, a child a little bit older, sometimes they have trouble finding a home, but the newborns, you know, those are the ones that are targeted in abortion. If you start saying we ought to kill off the eight-year-olds because nobody wants to adopt them, that would be a whole other question. But if we're talking about pregnancy, you know, really there is a home for that child. Um, but I think it's a similar thing in that the reasons... I used to do so much pro-life speaking, and I was often disappointed to find that my opponent just really wouldn't deal with the things I was saying. I noticed this about pro-choice, that they couldn't answer the things that um, pro-lifers were saying about, you know, unwanted. Women are sometimes unwanted. You know, what, it's, what if it's a woman who never got married? Are you going to kill her? Why does somebody else wanting her 
be the one thing that gives her the right to stay alive? Why do we, why do we let other people's opinion of us decide whether or not we even go on living? Well, you would never say that about a woman. Our value does not depend on somebody else's valuation of us. We, have, we are inherently valuable. So when we endorse that or when we say, oh, but it's so, so little and so tiny, you know, most women are smaller than most men. So again, as a, if you're small, you, you don't have the right to vote. You know, what do you take away from somebody for being small? All of those, all of those things, all the arguments used about the unborn, um, you could pretty much apply them to women as well, and it would just show how we would, we would never accept that as a valid reason for killing somebody. But I would find so often when I would use these arguments on a college campus or in a debate that my pro-choice opponent would just change the subject. She would never deal with what I was saying. And mostly what she would change it to was saying that I was a bad person, that I would be saying, here's what's wrong about ab abortion is a bad thing, but then she would not say abortion is a good thing. She would say, Frederick is a bad person. And it was just, you know, it's, it's such a threadbare debating technique. It, it's a fallacy. What was discouraging was how relieved the audience was because what I was, what I was saying was starting to make sense to them, and they didn't want to become an anti-choice fanatic. It was a matter of peer pressure more than anything else. It was like the, the, the kids on the, on the playground that you don't want to play with. That's what pro-life means. And the in crowd is everybody who's pro-choice. So we would talk, again, we talk as if, well, it's this even you know, exchange of ideas and both sides are equally weighted. But it wasn't. One side had the status quo, had all the money, had the newspapers, had the college campuses, had all this stuff, had the elite. And the pro-lifers have basically nothing. You know, we're, we're doing car washes in order to save babies' lives. We don't have this huge income coming in every year from the sale of abortion products. It was discouraging to me to see that the audience really didn't want to hear about it. They were very grateful to my opponent for giving them a reason, an illogical reason, to stop listening to what I was saying. Um, so I think there are good answers you could, you could use in a conversation, but I found that the motivation for not listening to those answers um, was different than I thought it was. It had more to do with what kind of a person you want to define yourself as. Um, which, are you in the in crowd or not? And the actual arguments themselves, they just would dismiss without even considering them. I was saying to Jennifer the other day, I forget which um, Democratic candidate it was, but recently they asked him, um, would it be all right to abort a baby like right up until minutes before the birth? And he said yes. And I. I think the thing that's kind of encouraging about that is he cannot possibly believe that's true. You know, nobody could actually believe that. He was backed into a corner where he felt that he had to say that. But he must inside be feeling like a big crack going through his middle because he knows that that can't be true. You know, maybe he's thinking, I don't know where the division is, but I know a few minutes before birth that can't be right. You know, so you go, start going backwards and you don't know where to make the, make the division. But I think it's kind of a good thing um, because when people are saying things they know deep inside they don't believe, 
it's an intolerable kind of burden to them. And there comes a point where they can't go on doing that anymore, even if they're not willing to say it in public, when they're alone, when they're going to sleep at night. It kind of haunts them. And they think, why did I say that? What do I think if I don't agree with that? Um, I think this is, I've always thought, the pro-life cause is one of those causes that could basically change overnight. It could go, to the, it could go totally to the pro-life cause in the wink of an eye because people on the other side are having to say things they actually don't believe. Which makes me ask another question. Mm -hmm. I'm afraid to talk to her. I'm afraid to talk to you know, my children about that because I don't want to bring it to that very question. Would you kill this child? Because they have two children. Would you kill this child a moment before birth? Because I actually don't want her to say that. Yes. I yeah. don't want to bring it to that point. Mm -hmm. You don't want to. It would be so horrible if she would actually say that. And I think she would probably say that's a stupid question and try to get away from it and not actually say it. Um, but yeah, you, you, you probably don't want to push it to that extreme. And it is, um, it is the kind of thing when you ask a question like that, they get, asked, they get angry at the person who asked the question. They think that's an illegitimate question and you're a bad person, just like I'm a bad person, you know, for even saying these things. And logic, I mean, who cares about logic anymore, right? I mean, we, there's no concept of the value of logic. But I think that we have a culture that's become so compassionate to the small and the weak and the oppressed and, you know, the disabled and everything. And this is this big glaring exception, you know? It, it would be so perfectly right for the liberal side to be in favor of protecting the unborn. It's, and that was what did it for me when I, I realized that abortion was a form of violence. And I was still vegetarian then. And, I uh, wasn't orthodox yet, and I was anti-death penalty and anti-war and anti-Vietnam, and this was the big exception, was that I was in favor of abortion. And I, I just realized that that was incompatible with the other things I believed. That was what brought me around to becoming pro-life. That could happen to a lot of people, you know. We can just hope that someday in the future that's, that's down the line. There's a, a question up here. Yeah. Um, along the same vein, so do you, you spend so long talking about abortion, do you feel like, is it even worth talking about all these, and these other hot button issues? Is, like, yeah. Is do, we, do we change people's minds or what do we do? Yeah, yeah. Um, is it even worth talking about abortion or other hot button issues? Do we change minds or what do we do? Maybe we just reinforce people as they rehearse the comebacks, you know, in their mind. In the 90s, it was really possible to speak in a public forum where both pro-life and pro-choice were listening. And a lot of my appearances on college campuses, there would be, you know, a lot of people in the audience that disagreed with me in a very, very lively question and answer. And over time, I saw less and less of that. I saw that pro-choice people just didn't bother to come. They, didn't, they, they stuck to themselves, pro-lifers stuck to themselves, and there really wasn't much conversation going on. Um, and there's the kind of a solidifying or a hardening of the opposite opinions, and much less of a concept of people having the right to speak 
a contrary opinion. That leg was fading away. It was the contrary opinion is so illegitimate, nobody's allowed to say it anymore. Yeah, defensiveness, of course, and at some level, awareness of where it's, there's a weakness in their own arguments. Um, so is it worth doing? I think the reason it's worth doing is to strengthen your own side. It's, it's likely you're just not going to be read by people who disagree with you. It's likely that'll happen. If they do, it's just so they can rehearse arguments against you. You know, it's, it's very, very canned. Um, I, one of my disappointments in doing pro-life stuff and talking to people was realizing how many people just really don't think. You know, they would start talking and it would just be one sound bite after another and things that were contradictory. You couldn't even believe those two things. They contradict each other. And um, it, was, it was just all these little canned phrases and it, you're not listening, are you? <laughs> you know, you just have no openness of mind and this is the in crowd, so I'm going to memorize all their sayings. You know, that's how I thought it was even in the 90s when I felt like there was some um, capacity for debate. It's still worth doing if you're a good wordsmith and you can put together talking points and arguments. It's, a, it's worth doing to publish that sort of thing because, you know, there are kids on college campuses everywhere or in workplaces where they're being challenged and they need, to be give, they need to be able to give a wise response. So I saw that as the best thing I could do would be to provide people with things that they could say in a difficult situation. It's that more than persuading people. You just hardly ever persuade anybody. But you can help strengthen your own side. So that makes it worthwhile. Thank you for doing that. Thank you. <laughs> Hi, Korea. Um, you may not recall, but uh, we were in communication a, a little bit over a year ago when uh, my internet service provider's um, child protection uh, software um, that I had enacted on my computer was blocking you. That's right. Blocking Rod Dreher, blocking any conservative news, blocking every pro-life organization, every single pro-life organization. Yeah, yeah. Um, and labeling them, labeling you and Rod Dreher and all these, you know, just conservative voices as hate. And, um, you know, for you it wasn't so strong as hate. Uh, someone like Father uh, John, it was hate on his blog. <laughs> Um, but they had, you know, labels for everybody. They did. They had labeled all of us. And you couldn't go, you couldn't use your software to see my website or my friend Rod's or anybody else who was pro-life because they blocked all of them on the basis of it being hate messages or, I forget what, it wasn't hate for me, but it was something like, it was um, violence. It was violence or something. Like yeah. I was describing like, violence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What you do is promoting violence. It was it just totally was baffling. But I think you went to them and they changed it. I did. So I, I went to them. I had to fight them. It took hmm. over a month yeah. uh, to uh, back and forth to get them to remove these labels from. And who knows if they've gone back by now? I don't know because I removed that software from my computer. <laughs> I mean, but this is a pretty popular. You know, it's frontier. It's Frontier. People have that everywhere. Wow. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, as we face these kinds of things where, you know, at the gatekeeper level, Christian voices are being censored. So mm -hmm. when you're saying it's worthwhile to publish things and it's worthwhile to speak out because there's people who need that encouragement, 
Um, is it also worthwhile then for us to be fighting for you know these constitutional rights and to you know be making it known that these things these kinds of things are happening like mm -hmm. what happened with frontier yeah i think it's worth fighting when you have the opportunity to fight i think we'll probably have um restrictions on our opportunities to fight that will happen less and less frequently but this is a founding concept of our democracy that as long as we have the ability the capacity to do this we should be standing up for our rights and fighting against that kind of injustice. And um, you know, as long as we're supposed to be able to have opposing voices heard in the public square, we should be trying to do that. Um, I'm, I'm just predicting looking down the years, I think that'll be less and less possible. There may come a point at which we have to say, well, that's just not possible anymore. We've got to think of another way to do this. Or we've just got to circle the wagons and exhort each other to live a good, strong Christian life. But as long as it is possible, we should be doing it. The classic idea of liberalism, you know, where the opposing voices can both be heard, and the position that you don't have any respect for or like, or even, even think is actively a bad position, it still has the freedom to stand up for itself and express itself. That's just a very beautiful and very noble aspect of American history. As long as it's possible, I, I hope that Christians will go on doing that. Anyone else? Thank you for letting me sit down. My feet were getting just aching. Think of poor father. He has to stand on this marble floor all the time. It's, it's hard on your feet. <laughs> of course, he's not as old as I am. Um, Frederica, I would just like to ask you a question about the tithing that you were talking about. Um, what advice would you give to either a couple who maybe one of them wants to tithe and the other one doesn't and they can't agree on how to do that, or to maybe a single person who's afraid, like doesn't make a lot of money and is sort of hoarding, like they can't release any amount of it out of fear? How would you, um, what advice would you give for them to learn to trust or come to an agreement. Yeah, yeah. Um, for a couple that one partner wants to tithe and the other doesn't want to tithe, I, I think it might be um, useful to look at what percentage are you currently giving or did you give over the course of the last year. And it will give you a solid number you can actually look at. And I think to, to try to change your, your, your thinking so that you're thinking in terms of proportional giving percentage giving rather than just impulse giving. Um, if it's proportional giving, in a way that's more reassuring because it's not like I'm, I'm tempted to give a huge amount this month and then next month I might be going hungry. Um, if you know I did okay last year at this percentage point, we'll do the same thing this year. The next year maybe we'll increase it a little bit. I think that does help to solve arguments between couples by focusing on a solid number that they can either increase or not increase, but you're, at least you're looking at the same thing. And I think for a single person as well that's kind of worried about overspending, I think the danger, the danger of that is greater if you're just giving impulsively from time to time. Um, that if you look at the record and you know how much money's coming in, then it's worth trying you know, to give, give the same percentage or a little more. I know that at our church, and I don't know whether you have this here, but we had a, a little extra fund 
that was there to help parishioners who had financial needs. And uh, anybody that wanted to could put money into it. You might, when you wrote your tithe, you put on the memo line, you know, put $25, $50, put it into the um, benevolence fund, we called it, the benevolence fund. And nobody but the priest would know who the money was going to. But it might help that single person, you know, who tried to step out in faith with a big, you know, big proportional giving, big tithe, and then had something happen, had to buy a new car or something. Um, it's nice to know that benevolence fund is there. The um, friends we had in seminary who taught us to tithe, one time they were down to $2, and um, there was, they had $20, they had a $2 tithe, they put their $2 in the plate, and at the end of the service, the pastor gave the entire plate to them. So, yeah, so you can trust. The church should take care of its own to the extent that it can. Thank you. Anybody else? I'm delighted to stop talking. <laughs> it's been a tiring day, but it's been lovely being with you last night and, and this morning, this afternoon. Thank, Thank you, you, Father. Very much for coming. <laughs> Thank you.